Welcome to Overthinking in Your Underwear. This is Lindsay, and we are continuing our love series, relationship series, whatever you want to call it, for the month of February. And if you listened to last week, we dived into dating and kind of all of that stuff, right? So this week is going to be a little interesting. So it's going to be about dating still and love. So in the first half, we're going to go through my book, kind of more of those dating things that we were kind of talking about before in the same way that we were last week. And in the second half, I'm going to take you through this book I read by Nathan Hill. It's called Wellness. It's not a dating book. It's a fiction book, but it brought up all these it brought up all these kind of like concepts on relationship and marriage and chemistry and passionate love versus romantic love, which I think is such an interesting concept. So that's going to be kind of like the second half of this talk. But right now we're going to kind of launch into some more of those dating tips where we picked up from last week. So we talked a lot about dating last week, but we didn't get into like the steamy subject of intimacy and sex. So, so far this month, we've talked about attachment styles. We've talked about dating. We haven't really gotten into like the steamy subject of sex, right? What happens when things go upside down and get horizontal? When it comes to sex, overthinking goes into overdrive. In the land of dating apps and bumbled relationships, sex is a minefield for our self-worth. We need validation from someone who just saw us in our tattered target underwear. And if we don't get it, we'll drain our self-worth to the last drop, won't we? I know I will. Or worse, like if I've done this like so many times, you guys, the worst thing is you have sex too soon and then you backfill the relationship part. Have you done that? So You go out with a guy, you sleep together. Maybe it's the first date, maybe it's the second date, maybe it's the fifth date, whatever like your boundaries are. We all have these different boundaries that are like imposed on us or that we gather from our parents, our community, our religion, whatever it is. But you have sex too soon by whatever that boundary is. And then now that you've done the deed, you produce every excuse you can find to tell yourself that it's working, to tell yourself that you actually like him when you don't like him. When he's actually bad for you, when he's actually terrible, when you actually just, maybe he's not terrible, but you just have no connection. There's actually nothing there. You have nothing in common. He's not treating you exactly correctly. But because you had sex too soon, you backfill the relationship part. You backfill the feelings. You make up these scenarios in your head and then you're hanging out longer than you should Because you want to fill that part up because of some preconceived notion you have about when you should have sex and who you should have sex with. So you're trying to make it more, right? And so so incidentally, you're hanging out with the wrong people too long. You're hanging out with partners that don't treat you well. When actually, it would be better if you just cut it off. It would be better if you just stood in your self-worth and said, eh, you know what? That happened, I did that, and now I'm moving on. That was an action, I'm completely fine with it. It was something between two people, and now I'm moving on because I can see that this isn't filling myself worth, this isn't how I wanna be treated, this is something separate. The separate part is the relationship, and the relationship is not what I want. The sex was one thing, the sex happened. The relationship is not what I want, and now I'm moving on, and now I'm moving on to find that. 
if if the sex happened and the relationship is great, great, but don't backfill the relationship part. So I have done that. I've produced every excuse and spent weeks, if not months, forcing a connection with someone who did not deserve my attention. This is where time frames and attachment styles come in handy. So I think like you've probably all like read those books. This is so like 1980s, those books that are like, wait two weeks to have sex, wait seven dates to have sex, make him say I love you before you have sex, make sure you meet his parents before you have sex, like all these kind of milestones in the path before you do the deed. Definitely that is not what this is about because I don't believe in that. You, Everyone has seen the stories on TikTok. I reference this all the time because, you know, TikTok is our modern day encyclopedia. Everyone's seen the stories on TikTok where it's like, we had sex the first night and now we're married. You know, we had sex the first night and now look at our first kids. You know, how it started, where it's going, did this work out? And then you flash to the, the couple that's 20 years later. I don't, there is definitely not any rhyme or reason about how it works there's no special sauce. I will give you this piece of, of advice about timeframes and attachment styles that I think comes in handy. It can work for your self-worth. It's about your self-worth. So when we put guardrails around sex, it's just to protect our self-worth and our heart for unnecessary roughness, okay? So timeframes are as personal as sex itself. So it's kind of like all this stuff we go through in this podcast and in the book. You need to check in with yourself and figure out what your time frame for sex is. And it very well can change from partner to partner. For you, is sex a first night thing? And it's not a big deal and you do not care. And sex is just an action and you love it. It's an expression. It's an expression of your body and you do not care. Sex is a first night thing. Great. If sex is a two-week thing because you really want to try to get to know the person and you want to lean into their personality and you really feel like you need to know the person before you have sex with them, sure, write down somewhere two weeks. If it's a one-month thing, before you go on a date, it's kind of like the drinking thing. If you listen to drinking in, in the January episode, Think about what it what think about what your guardrails are. Think about what your limits are. You know, drinking, can you have one drink when you go out every night? It's about like making it's about consciously, mindfully, there's that like very, you know, we'll we'll use mindful, that very buzzword thing. It's about mindfully using sex in your life. Is it first night? Is it are you a two-week kind of person? Are you a one-month kind of person? Knowing what your general rule is kind of helps you. The first step of time frames is is kind of know what your personal time frame is. It's like, eh, I'm kind of a three-week kind of person. I'm a three-week kind of person because it lets me know the other person. I feel safe around three weeks. That's that's where I am. I'm at three weeks. Just kind of know that. Everybody's comfort level differs wildly. So act out what's right for you. Timeframes are not based on moral judgments, only a structure to help you fill in your feelings within the relationship, right? So let's say you've chosen your optimal time frame. Three weeks is what I just threw out. I threw out. So for the purposes of this talk, we're going to say 
three weeks. So now we have our number, whether it's three weeks or three hours, whatever you choose, it's not about gamifying sex, all right? That's not the play here. This is an information gathering mission, not a grandmaster plan of trickery to gain power or change someone from non-committal to marriage material. The time frame isn't about making your partner work for it or putting up a chase. Establishing limits is about you. And you owe yourself the extra effort to decide if this person is worth the lip gloss, to see their flaws, and fully acknowledge the value they bring to your life. So that's kind of part one of this. Here's part two and where attachment styles come in. As you're waiting maybe three hours or the three weeks, it gives you a chance to see your partner's attachment style and decide if that's something you want to dive into. If you see your partner's avoidant and you still want to go for it, have at it. Have fun. No judgment. But at least it lets you know what you're dealing with. So understanding attachment styles when it comes to sex and intimacy can be such an illuminating tool (laughs) as you're out there in the wild world of dating. So for example, let's assume there's an anxious partner and an avoidant type. Been there a million times. The couple has sex right away, and the anxious partner is inclined to act needy, clingy, and unsure of the relationship, while the avoidant partner pushes back after too much closeness. You can see how the relationship is stalled without ever starting, or either partner gets to know the other. Well, what if you have a secure attachment style and your partner is avoidant? All of your security about the relationship and ideas about sex can't change how an avoidant partner will react from the vulnerability that comes with intimacy. Ugh, I have been there, you guys. So I know you have too, because because I think there's a natural inclination to be attracted to avoidant people. There's that mystery. There's that standoffishness. You want to break down that wall. And that's fine. Sometimes there can just be a wall there that people do need you to break down. And then you then you get then you break down the wall and there's that gushy, gooey center, right? I would that's always a bad analogy. I should have said the hard shell, and then there's the gushy gooey center, right? Okay. If you're going for the avoidant type over and over, first of all, check yourself. Second of all, it is a attachment style that's impervious to change. Not that they can't change themselves, of course they can, but you can't change them with adorable outfits and cute date nights. You're not going to change them by anything you do, and in fact, the more that you do, probably the more they're going to push away, especially when it comes to sex. You could have this amazing night and an amazing date night, and I've even said like an amazing trip, and what will probably happen is that they will pull away. You or they or you guys together have breached their intimacy boundary. They have an intimacy boundary that is built up and it has been breached and it will of course be breached by sex and you feel all gushy and gooey and warm in the center and they feel violated by their avoidant boundary and they pull away and they retreat and you're sitting there going, what did I do? I thought we had this great time. And especially after sex, you feel so vulnerable and you're sitting there running through every scenario. Shouldn't I not have put my hand there? Should I not have put my toe there? Oh my God. It gets so vulnerable and so painful, frankly, when you're in an intimate relationship with an avoidant partner because they will pull away right at the most sensitive times. 
So using attachment theory, you can become a much more discerning dater. If you're using your three-week mark, let's say for sex or whatever time frame you imposed, you could evaluate and say, well, they canceled plans. They feel cold and closed off. They're not great at communicating. Maybe they're avoidant. And you could choose not to continue with a personality that would call in the defenses the minute things get cozy. Or maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you go for it but you know not to take it personally. You take things less personally when they pull away. You know it's not you. It's a fixed attachment style that you have no power to change. So there are endless combinations of attachment styles we can cook up and compare. But having sex before you see your your date's capacity to connect sets you up for heartbreak that could be skipped. So put in some time, whether it's three weeks or three hours, and see who is sitting across from you before the hyped up hormones of sex get gets involved. So I like to say sex is good when you love the other person, but sex is amazing when you love yourself. So be sure to protect your self-worth. Continue to work on all the things that we talk about in the book and in this podcast. Like I said, that was from my book, Overthinking in Your Underwear, available on Amazon. Second half, we're going to overthink some things from Nathan Hill's book. Thanks so much. So I read this book called Wellness by Nathan Hill. It's really good. And you don't need to read the book or anything else to continue this to continue listening this week. I just wanted to say that Wellness by Nathan Hill, it's what got me thinking on the train of thought we're going to carry on to today. It's a yeah, it's a it's a fiction book about some people in their 40s going through kind of the trials of marriage, but within that they bring up he brings up all these really interesting questions. The wife is uh like a psychologist or researcher, so there's all these like research studies in between it and within it like woven in which I was like, "Oh my god, my overthinking brain was dying." So I loved it so that I wrote down all of these like questions that she was pondering, the wife was pondering. And that's what we're going to ponder today because it had me overthinking like crazy. Um, so yeah, we're not going to talk about the book per se. We're going to talk about these ideas that I have been overthinking and you don't need to know anything about the book. I won't even mention it after that, after this. They quickly bring up the idea of passionate love versus companion love and I overthink this all the time. As someone who's single and not married, um, take this with a grain of salt. If you want to click off now and not and not hear from me anymore, fine. But I'm going to overthink this for a while. And I overthink it all the time. And if you're one of my friends, you know I do. Um, what is, is passionate, passionate love? Obviously. Obviously, it's real. I've been there a million times and I love it. There's nothing better than the feeling, right? There's nothing better than the feeling of the spark and the chemistry of like actually feeling like the energy of someone in the room. Passionate love is real. Obviously it's real, but is it real? And it's something that you marry and can last for 20 years. That's really what this woman in the book is pondering. 
Passionate love obviously exists. I hope you've experienced it one to 15 times in your life because it's fabulous. There's nothing better. They call it new relationship energy in the book. Um, I'm pretty sure Nathan Hill coined that term because I haven't heard it before. It sounds like something very TikTok-y, right? Um, everyone knows new relationship energy. It's the best. It's fun. It's scary almost. It like tingles through your body. Like how much do we love new relationship energy? You like can't get enough. You're also staring at your phone all the time? Are they going to call you? You can't expect new relationship energy to last for 20 years. You know, if it, if it does, it's probably almost because your partner is like abusive. I feel like, is that a horrible thing to say? But it's like, if your partner's still playing games with you 20 years later and they're, you're wondering if they're going to call you, I feel like we have bigger problems. Um, I would never want that. I would never want like some sort of uncertainty of like, is my partner going to text me today? And we're 20 years in. Like, I don't want the new relationship energy at that point, right? So um, passionate love, we we all know it. We've all felt it. It's the best. Um, And then companion love is the kind of thing where you marry someone, you're with someone. Let's take marriage out of the equation. You're with someone, and maybe it starts over here. It starts the passionate love. You have that NRE, new relationship energy. It starts over here, and it moves to he's my he or she, they. They are my best friend. They are my best friend. They are safe. I love the things they do for me. I love what I do for them. I love our little rituals. Um, I love how they take care of my kids or I love that they don't want kids. Like whatever it is, like your lives fit together perfectly. They are a perfect companion for you. It is companion love and you guys are living your lives together. Um, And that kind of love can have obviously a ton of value. The woman in the book has gotten to the point where that is very boring to her. I think that happens to lots of people. I think it happens to lots of people, men and women. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think this happens to women more than men. Um, Based on absolutely nothing. Based on my research of absolutely nothing. Um, 20 years in, can you still have that spark? And I do not know. And I was seeing, I saw something on TikTok the other day where a therapist was talking about if you want all of, you know, if you want to still have the spark, if you want to nurture your chemistry, you have to nurture your communication. Yes. You have to make a date for, you have to make a date for date night. Yes. Um, You have to make sure to listen to each other's needs and respect each other's needs and like beat back resentment. Yes, you have to plan hobbies together. Yes. I definitely see I definitely see how all of those things can be really helpful to build that to build that structure for healthy chemistry and healthy sex. I still think nobody can deny it's not going to be the same as new relationship energy and the passion of the beginning. It's going to change into a companion type love, a companion type sexual relationship based maybe more on respect and a deep love and rather than this hot spicy chemistry of the beginning. 
So I think maybe expectations of that is important. The expectation that that is going to change and evolve and know what you're signing up for. Like, you know, that this is going to go, that this is finite. This chemistry is finite. We all get a little bit of it at the beginning and it will go away and it will change into companion love built on respect and being best friends and having mutual hobbies and going out together and having a social circle together or like passion. Like the people I was most attracted to were the people that this is, maybe this is me and I'm really messed up. The people I was most attracted to were the people that I thought didn't like me. And that's not conducive for a long-term thing. Anybody else? Does anybody else have that same thing? Like there's always like the chemistry and the attraction was coming from like a like need of, I don't think that I really have them. And Maybe chemistry wears off because you actually know that you have the person. Like maybe that's where chemistry goes away is like some sort of complacency because the hottest chemistry is always like, I actually don't think I have this person. I don't know. Just a thought. Okay. And I loved this theory that was brought up in the book. It, there's kind of a theme of, well, we fall in love with the story. And it's not even so, I mean, it, it's obvious. This is so unromantic, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry if you're like on a romantic kick and you're just, or you just fell in love and you're like, thanks, downer. This is like the least romantic thing I've ever heard. We fall in love with a story. And I, this was like kind of made me laugh because I think maybe as like a writer and as a creative person, I think back to some of the relationships that like caught me the most, they always had a good story about them. You know, like I would, I've always felt like, like I was never going to be like, well, we met on, we met on hinge and happily ever after. Cause it's not a good story. Like I fall in love with a story. I love a story. And so that's the thing we said, like, and this couple in the book, they had this whole narrative about each other. Like they saw each other from across the way and then they both had crushes on each other and it took months for them to get together and blah, blah, blah. And they would tell, <clears throat> excuse me, and they would tell the story over and over again. And it became like so elevated that they fell in love with the story and they fell in love with their story as much as they fell in love with each other. We create these myths around things that we really want to work and weddings are, and they, they say this in the book, like weddings are even part of that story. Like you continue to build upon the story because stories have so much power. Okay. This is a good example. Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, right? Like I'm in love with them more than I've been in love with some people that I've actually dated. Okay. So, um, part of them is their story. Travis went to a concert. We see pictures of him watching her. He gave her a friendship bracelet with his phone number on it. Oh my God. Like we know so many pieces of this story. We usually don't have, we usually aren't privy to that much, right? Like usually we just like see Taylor with Joe, Joe Allen all of a sudden. And we're like, Oh, I guess they're dating. Okay. Whatever. We don't know how that happened. We saw her with Maddie Healy all of a sudden gross, but I mean, we didn't, we had no backstory for that. We wouldn't have liked it anyway. Not the point. 
But with with Travis, it's like we know all these parts of the story. He then goes on his podcast and talks about how he gave her the friendship bracelet and he was so into her and he hopes she calls. Oh my God, she clearly did call because she shows up at the game. We get to see this. We get to see her reaction. We are involved. We're invested in their story. It's a good story. So stories have power. And I bet, you know, I think they're probably very into each other because who wouldn't be into Travis? Who wouldn't be into Taylor? but they're probably in love with their story too because their story has power. And so kind of think about that. Think back to like some of your situations. I think it can be a powerful self-help tool if maybe you're trying to get over someone and you go, you know what? Half of that was story. (laughs) Half of that was I loved how we came together and it had nothing to do with him or her or whatever, right? Um, So within that... Maybe, maybe not within that. Within that's the pro- probably the wrong word to say. Okay, so another thing that Nathan Hill talks about in terms of love is that this is how we kind of select partners. You see something in another person that you want, their confidence, their charisma, their looks, and you kind of adopt them. You expand yourself to include them. And What's interesting is one of my theories about kind of love in my book, Overthinking in Your Underwear, I talk about that. And I say, you have to complete yourself first uh, to find a partner who's the whole damn deal. Because if we're choosing people based on what's lacking in ourself, we're not using the best picker possible. If you've picked a partner to fill a void of insecurity rather than working through your own past and presenting your best self to the world, you're going to end up with someone that's just based on what you're missing out on in yourself. So um, I think that's really interesting. It's always kind of been, again, not based on research, but it's just something that I kind of always saw myself doing. Like I was always attracted to, I've, I've talked, I talk about this a lot that I'm an introvert. Um, I I don't present like an introvert. I present like a major extrovert, an introvert who extroverts. Um, but I was always attracted to really confident guys, guys who were really loud guys who could really fill up the room. And I realized like when you're just leading with like, if those are the only three things you look about, you look at, but really you also want someone who's kind, who protects you, who makes you feel safe, who um, treats you well, who's full of compassion, who's full of empathy. If you want someone who can connect emotionally, you want all those three, those things, but you just lead with those three things. You lead hard with confidence, can fill up a room, can extrovert with the best of them because you're missing those things in yourself. You know what? You're probably going to end up with a partner, the the wrong partner, 9.9 times out of 10. And that's what I did. And when I got comfortable with myself, like now I'm like, I'm an introvert and I love being an introvert. Catch me on the couch with my dog. Very comfortable with myself as an introvert. I'm not going to lead with those things. I don't need you to fill up those parts of me because I'm okay with it. And I can go for some of those more real, genuine qualities, right? The author also says, marriage is a condition where you find so many qualities within another person that you want to have that you are willing to take on their flaws. Like I said, super unromantic. I think it's... (laughs) 
It felt like really true to me, but it also is like not romantic at all. So sorry about that. And I, I, I think it's so true because I always look at couples like this. It's why we say opposites attract because the quiet person looks for the loud person to kind of balance out those qualities that they don't have. Right. Um, the extrovert looks for the introvert, that kind of thing. Um, the creative person looks for the more cerebral person. The cerebral person looks for the more creative person. Like these kinds of things. Like people are looking for people to fill out what parts of themselves they don't have. And when it comes to like, you know, the creative person looking for the cerebral person, that's fine as long as you don't see it as like a huge void in yourself that they're filling. It's just sort of like the yin to your yang. Of course, that's fine. Um, if you're looking for someone and you're like, wow, they have a lot of self-worth. I'm going to date them because I have none. That's where I think it becomes problematic. So the end of the book, I'll just tell you, is not unromantic, actually. Um she well, so if you're so stop listening. If you decided to read Wellness by Nathan Hill, you can stop listening right now. Uh, at the end of the book, the, the you know, the husband and the wife are very far apart through the whole thing. They're really struggling with their marriage, very like midlife, 20 years in angst. And they both kind of go through all of these things. And at the end of the book, they kind of find each other again. And she looks at him and remembers what she loved from him from that from the beginning that nre that new relationship energy not in a passionate way she just kind of sees him as like the boy she fell in love with like she's kind of looking at him across um the way and um really sees what she loved and he looks at her and he sees why he loved her and it kind of kind of ends there. And you know they're going to stay together. But to me, it's like, you know, they're not going to go home and rip their clothes off, rip each other's clothes off. It's not that. It's really like they're companions. They're in this together. This is something they've committed to. They still have that love for each other. And she's kind of dispelled all of these things she has thought about, about the passionate love thing. You know, she kind of goes through that and is like, is, do I need, like, is, is that a thing? What is this? What am I missing? And then she looks at him and is kind of sees her best friend basically. So it is romantic, honestly, it's very realistic. It's very, um, I think true to life. And I, and I thought it was actually very romantic. So, um, it's a good book. And I think if you are, I mean, I liked it and I'm not married at all, but I am, I was the same age as the main character. But if you are, if you're married and kind of in that place, I think it would be like super illuminating for anybody that has been like in a long-term partnership. Thanks so much for overthinking with me this week until next time, wishing you all good thoughts.